are about to hear the story of a stunningly beautiful fitness model and professional dancer who was told that she had a 1% chance of saving her leg. She turned surviving into thriving, and you will leave today inspired to climb that mountain in front of you. Amberly Lago, I am so blown away and grateful and honored to have you as my guest today on this podcast. I want to tell everybody a little bit about Amberly. She is an author. She has she is a TED Talker. She's done an amazing TED Talk. I actually watched it again this morning. It is the most inspirational, mind-blowing, hilarious. Like I was laughing out loud. I was tearing up. It's 14 and a half minutes long, and I can't believe the range of emotions that I felt. I actually can believe it because her book absolutely rocked my world. It was so incredible. And I, you know, anybody who knows me knows that I listen to books as I walk through the, my neighborhood and I'm walking up the hills, up and down the hills, huffing and puffing, listening to books and just absolutely bawling my eyes out, listening to Amberly's story. So I don't want to steal her thunder. I really want her to kind of tell what, what happened and what sent her down this journey she was a dancer. She was a fitness model. Her entire life and career was surrounded by and consumed by physical fitness, physical activity, and being a stud. She was actually even in an MC Hammer video. Like this is, she's the real deal. Something happened one day and she, it changed the course of her life forever. And so Amberly, I want you to tell us the story of what happened and thank you so much for being a guest today. Oh my goodness. You are awesome. I am so grateful to be here. Thank you so much. That was the most beautiful introduction, but I also, I just want to say to your listeners, what an incredible person you are because you would, you like listen to my book and would leave me these sweet messages that just touched my heart. So I appreciate you and I'm honored to be here. And my intention is to, to really share some things that will help every listener tap into their own superpower of resilience. And so I just started kind of laughing myself when you were like, she's legit. She like what MC hammer video. <laughs> <laughs> And you know, those, that, those were some of the funnest or most fun. Is that the correct grammar? I should say being an author <laughs> times of my life, but you know, things can sure change in a minute, as we all know, you know, uh, plans change. They don't always, you know, things kind of get turned upside down. And I think a lot of us have experienced so much change in the last couple of years for sure. And for me, yeah, I was on top of the world. And it was actually, I, I would say the first time I felt like, wow, I am living the California dream. You know, I've got a husband. I mean, after being a single mom for so long, um, I had one daughter that was older from my previous marriage and my youngest daughter, um, which we didn't think we could have a baby together. And we had a baby and my career was successful. And it was a Friday afternoon. 
coming home from work, I had just run my best time that day with my workout partner who was, uh, I was a little competitive with him and I beat him for the first time. And I was like, woohoo, life is good. And I hop on my Harley and I'm, come, you know, cruising down Ventura Boulevard. This, we lived in LA and uh, I look over and there's an SUV and I think, well, he sees me. And apparently not. He shot out of the parking lot. I was T-boned, thrown about 30 feet. And I just remember sliding across the asphalt and thinking, please don't let another car hit me because I couldn't tell what I was sliding into. And when I came to a stop, I looked down at my leg once. I had immediate pain and it was crumbled into pieces. There was blood everywhere. And I think because I have, you know, I started working at age 13 and I had worked so hard and always had to figure things out. And I was the main breadwinner of the family. When I looked down at one of my first thoughts was, wow, this can't be good. I might have to train clients on crutches for a while. I had no idea just how drastically this was going to change my life forever. Um, I was screaming. Uh, I was afraid to let go of my leg. I was afraid that it, that it would fall off, to be perfectly honest with you. And um, luckily, there was a guy that came over and ripped his belt off, and he made a tourniquet on, on my leg right away. And he really saved my life because I didn't know at the time my femoral femoral artery was severed. So I was bleeding out. Um, there were paramedics right down the street. And they before they even got the call, they had seen the accident and they were already running towards me. So I feel like there were these little miracles every step of the way. I got rushed to the hospital. It was chaotic. My husband is a retired um, California Highway Patrolman. He was a lieutenant commander and first responder. And so I had never seen him cry. He's this big, tough guy. And in the ER, I just heard so much commotion and there were so many people and I'm, I'm, you know, strapped down to this gurney, my head's strapped down and, uh, I hear this crying and I'm like, what is that? And it was my husband. And at that moment I yelled across the room because he was running back and forth, freaking out. And I yelled across the room honey, I need you to get over here now and be strong for me. And it was because in that moment, I thought I might be dying. And I thought I need to know that he is going to be able to pull it together and take care of our two kids. And he held my hand. And that is the last thing I remember before um, they put me in induced coma. I'd lost so much blood that all my organs were shutting down and they couldn't control my pain. And then the next thing I remember is waking up out of a coma and being told that I had a 1% chance of saving my leg from amputation. Mm. Oh my gosh. I mean, that, that story, I, I vividly, I remember every single detail and it's funny cause I get home from every single walk and you know, I, I, I listen to books just constantly. Right. And so, and I, whenever I finish and then walk into a room with my husband, I'm giving him a play by play of what I've just listened to. And I, I remember walking into the room where he was and telling him your 
story because mm. I did not know all of these details at before I read your book, before I, I listened to all this. I had, I, you know, had watched all your videos and, and all the things, but I had never heard the play by play. And I think that nobody thinks that it could happen to them, right? It was a Friday afternoon. It was, it was a beautiful day. You were, you know, you, you had a sandwich or something for your husband, like a pork sandwich in your backpack, right? Or something like that. Yes. You have such a good memory. And that's, it's crazy because one of the thoughts that I had, and you know, I've had people ask me, they're like, well, do you remember it happening? And I remember every detail. And one of my first thoughts was I had my husband's brand new backpack and one of my clients had made some pulled pork sandwich for me. And I was thinking, oh, my husband's going to be so upset that his backpack is going to have pork all in it. Well, I didn't realize that backpack was disintegrated because I had been sliding across the asphalt for so long that it that saved my spine, you know, thank goodness I had that backpack on. And, um, then I was thinking things like, you know, I was yelling out and I was cussing like uncontrollable screams and thinking, Oh my goodness, my Methodist mama wouldn't be too proud of me cussing. And, and yeah, you, you, you know, you just never know when things are going to change or, and, and because of all of this, I try my best not to ever take things for granted, but you know, when I woke up out of a coma, which I don't recommend to anybody, I mean, you've got tubes going in your mouth and, uh, you know, my arms were fl flailing around and I'm thinking, you know, you have no idea how long you've been under. It feels like a couple of hours. And I remember, you know, um, seeing my husband and he was standing over me with tears in his eyes. And you would think I would be like, Oh, honey, I love you. And instead, uh, you know, I was trying to rip these tubes out of my mouth and, and the nurse was like, get her a pen, get her a pen. She's trying to say something. And then she's like, no, honey, don't rip those out of your mouth. You have to leave those in. And the first thing I wrote kind of in chicken scratch was get off my tubes because my husband was leaning on my tubes, cutting the air circulation off and I couldn't breathe. And then the next thing I wrote was don't tell Savannah. And Savannah was my oldest daughter and she was away at an eighth grade trip. I had no idea I'd been out for over a week oh. and that she knew. And then I saw my mom and I thought, oh my goodness, my mom has flown in from Dallas and she's taken off work. She, this must be serious. And when they told me that I had a 1% chance, I thought, okay, well then there's still a chance. And I want to find a doctor who's going to be willing to take that chance with me. And it took an act of God and you know, hospital, it was really hard to get transferred. They don't want to take someone who could like die on the way, but we pulled a lot of strings. I got transferred and, um, Dr. Wiss and a whole team of surgeons. I mean, these doctors would come in and it reminded me of like a football team that would huddle before the game. And they, were amazing. And surgery by surgery, um, 34 surgeries and all, they managed to save my leg. And I spent, you know, about three and a half months in the hospital. And when I got home, I really thought, well, things are going to get better. 
you know, being an athlete my whole life and a dancer, I had been through, you know, you, I had learned to train hard, to push through pain, to, to suck it up. And, you know, my motto was like, get her done. And, you know, it will, you just work hard and things get better. And the pain did not seem to be getting better at all. In fact, it seemed to be getting worse. And, um, I went into a doctor's appointment for a checkup and, he took, I thought he was going to be proud of me for being, you know, upright and out of my wheelchair. Cause that was a fight to just get out of bed because the pain was so unbearable. And he took one look at me and he ran out of the office and I looked at my husband and I thought, well, that's not the reaction I was expecting. And he comes back in and he says, you, and he did, you know, he examined me and he said, you've got something very serious. And I'm like, yeah, I was hit by an SUV. It's pretty serious, but I'm here, you know? And he's like, no, you have a nerve disease. It's called RSD. Um, now they call it complex regional pain syndrome. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, you need to go home and get back in your wheelchair. And I said, well, for how long? And he said, forever. He said, you're going to be permanently disabled. There's no known cure. Um, you will probably not be able to wear shoes, but if you do, it will, it will have to be an orthopedic shoe. And I pretty much stopped listening after the word never. And I left there feeling like I had been handed, you know, a life sentence, like I'd been kicked in the gut and I cried all the way home. And when I got home, I didn't go back and get in my wheelchair. I went straight to physical therapy. And I told Terry, who I was at physical therapy every day, but this was a day I didn't have an appointment. You know, I didn't usually go on the weekends. And um, he goes, Amberly, what are you doing here? And I said, Terry, I just learned something. If I want to have the life that I've always imagined, I'm going to have to work harder than I've ever worked before. And I told him I'd just been diagnosed with CRPS. And I did not know how hard that was going to be. And I started taking... Well, first I was in denial and I was like, that doctor has to be wrong. And I went to other doctors and <clears throat> they were like, nope, you've got you sure enough, you've got this. And I was like, that doctor must be wrong too. This cannot be my life. And so I went to the third doctor and he, by the third time a doctor diagnosed me and he said, you need to take radical action because this could spread. It could get worse. I like, I just broke down. And so I started doing these radical treatments. I mean, very, some very invasive, invasive. I had never had, uh, you know, never done a drug in my life. And now all of a sudden I was being induced with ketamine, which is basically a horse tranquilizer to try to reboot your nervous system. Um, it's a disease of your sympathetic nervous system and it's a constant loop of pain. So for better, you know, to try to, understand what it's like. It's kind of like a computer that needs to be rebooted. It's just, it doesn't work properly. So what might feel like, um, the bed sheet on your leg still to this day feels like it's sandpaper rubbing against my leg, which will cause extreme burning. Um, if I have certain shoes on, you know, I have to, but people think, well, oh, why do you work out in boots? Why do you always wear those certain boots? Well, it's the only thing that I can find. It's taken me years to find a shoe that I can wear that doesn't give me a CRPS flare up, which basically feels like 
a thousand rubber bands wrapped around your foot or like a vice grip squeezing your foot. And so it was literally driving me insane. And I understand now, you know, why it's called, it's dubbed the suicide disease because there is no known cure and it leaves you in this constant chronic pain. And people, when they find out they can't eat, sometimes people in their lives because the pain is so severe or they start doing what I did, which was slowly kill themselves with drugs or alcohol. And I went from being this elite athlete sponsored by Nike to all of a sudden after trying all these failed treatments to living out of a bottle and becoming a full-blown alcoholic and ready to, to end my life to, I, I was at a place where I was having thoughts like my husband could find another wife. He could find another mom for my children. Um, they deserve better. It would be better off if I was gone. And there was just one day. And I think there's a gift in desperation and in this hopelessness that I had, I've had this little flicker of light. I think we all have light within us and we have to find ways to get that light shining bright. And for me, I had a connection with God, but I had been drinking so much that that, that was, that connection was pretty, pretty hazy. It wasn't quite there. I was trying to do everything on my own. And in this moment of desperation, I just got on my knees and I prayed and I said, I need help. And I think that that help is what gave me the courage to ask for help. And I think if I can share out of anything I can say today is like, you know, I felt so alone in my pain and I felt nobody's going to understand this. Nobody is going to understand the shame that I feel and how I've, I've that how much pain I'm in and, and how I've lost everything. And, and I hated myself. And the more I drank, the more I hated myself. And I felt like, um, well, let me have the courage to just reach out. And it took, oh, it took so much courage to reach out because I actually reached out to a former client of mine who I knew was sober. And I reached out to her and I said, hey, I got a problem and I really need help. She goes, I'm going to help you. I'm going to take you to a recovery meeting. And I said, okay. And I didn't hear back from her for a week. And I literally thought, I'm going to die if I don't get help like right now. And so I Googled 12-step recovery and I found a meeting that I could go to that my when my husband was at work and when my daughter was in school. And so I went from sneaking my drinking and trying to hide my pain and try, living this some sort of double life, trying to pretend like everything was okay. But on the inside, I was literally dying to now I was sneaking, going to get help. And I wanted to get a few, you know, meetings under my belt, get a grip on what I was doing. And I went to that meeting and I had tremors. My hands were shaking because I now had a physical dependency on alcohol. And I sat, I remember sitting in the corner and I sat on my hands so nobody would see my hands that were trembling. And I sat in between a nun and this lady wearing a cowboy hat. And we're in <laughs> California. And I'm like, well, if a nun 
can be an alcoholic, then surely I can too. And in that meeting, I heard hope. And in that meeting, I heard people share things that I was going through, share my story. And I thought, wow, if they can get through this. And I heard laughter and I heard joy and I heard people being able to laugh at themselves. And, and I heard solutions and I kept going back and I kept going back. And that was in 2016 when I got, when I decided to get sober and little by little, I started to rebuild my life, but I had to rebuild everything mentally, spiritually, physically, financially. I mean, we had $2.9 million worth of medical expenses. Oh my gosh. And I think that any type of transformation, whether that is with your finances or your relationship or your physical health or your feeling broken spiritually, whatever that is, it starts with taking radical acceptance, like getting really brutally honest with yourself. Now, I remember telling my husband, you know, I think I got a problem. He's like, no, no, you don't have a problem. Anybody that had to deal with all that you go through would be doing the same thing. But the thing is, I knew I had a problem. And I think that we all know if something's working for us or if it's not. And I think sometimes we just have to ask ourselves a simple question and that's, how's that working for you? Like, is that hurting you or is that helping you? And everything we do is either hurting us or helping us. And once we get radically honest and have that acceptance, with ourselves, then we can then take action steps to make the right decisions, to make better decisions, to make our life the best that it can be. And I'm not saying it's easy. Acceptance was really hard for me. And I think that sometimes it helps when we can have others shift our perspective a little bit. And I think it helps when we can have others love us until we can love ourselves. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, I didn't want to accept my circumstances the way I looked. I mean, I used to do fitness modeling and now all of a sudden I'm deformed and scarred down from the hip down. And I remember hating my leg, hating it and hates a four letter word in our family. And I remember I was like, I've got a solution. I've got this bright idea. I'm just going to go to the doctor and tell him we need to cut it off. So I go to Dr. Wiss about a year after my accident and I said, Dr. Wiss, you know what? I appreciate all you've done for me, but this is just not working out for me. I need you to go ahead and amputate my leg. He said, well, that's, that's not, that's not a solution. We can't do that. It can make the CRPS spread. And he did something that changed my life. He took my leg and he put it in his lap. Now, usually when you go to a doctor's office, they'll be like, lay down on the table or put your leg on the table. He sat down in front of me and he put my leg in his lap. And my first thought was, I can't believe he's putting my ugly deformed leg in his lap. And then he looked at it like it was a miracle, like it was a masterpiece, like look at what he had saved. There was a 1% and he saved it. And something shifted in me. And I thought, if he can look at my leg that way, maybe I can learn to look at it differently too. And every day I was just willing to try and willing to try and love myself a little bit more 
And day by day, I started to look at my leg with gratitude for it healing the way that it did. I started to look at the scars as victories I had overcome. I started to thank my leg for holding me up and allowing me to walk and chase after my daughter. And things started to change. Then I was even able to start loving it and start wearing shorts and not giving a crap if anybody stared or got freaked out when they saw all my scars because I was in full acceptance. And I think once you are comfortable in your own skin and you realize you have a choice, you take your power back. Yeah, it is so, so incredible. Absolutely incredible. So the thing I, I think that most people, if they went through a <laughs> one millionth of what you've been through would have, would have given up and thrown in the towel, take the leg. I'm whatever d- drunk themselves. You had every excuse in the book mm-hmm. to find relief at the end of a bottle every single day. Like you had every excuse in the book and nobody on the planet could fault you for that, truly. And so your strength and fortitude to get you from not just through, what is it, 34 or 36 surgeries to keep your leg? 34 where they put me under anesthesia. So I only count the surgeries where they knocked me out. I had surgeries in the office, Mm. like where they didn't put me under. And I'm like, well, that one doesn't count because they didn't actually put me under anesthesia, but 34 where they put me under which my hair was falling out. Yeah, It's crazy what anesthesia does to you for sure. So you know what, honestly, it's like, yeah, let me tell you alcohol and it, it did numb out the pain for a while it worked and it does help you stuff down. It helped me stuff down the feelings of unworthiness and shame. And I realized, you know, when I was stuck in this hospital bed for so long and my only tool that I really had for dealing with any kind of shame, anger, anxiety, any kind of a feeling was to do something that made me feel better, which was run or Mm. work out or dance. And I couldn't do those things. So I was stripped away of all my coping mechanisms and all my tools. And I was left literally sitting with all these feelings and they got to be so heavy that I just couldn't take it. And I craved that relief. And so that's why I hit the bottle. Now I know a different kind of relief. I know that I can turn to God and ask for help. I know that I can call and reach out to one of my sober sisters. I know that I can go be of service and that gets me out of self-pity and the, you know, spiraling down into sadness or despair. If I just go help somebody, I also know the quickest and easiest way to shift your perspective is to get grateful. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's something I practice every day. And I know you hear a lot of people talk about get grateful, have a gratitude practice. But I realized the power of gratitude one night when I was sitting, you know, in the hospital bed and I would dread the nurses would come in and they would change my bandages every three hours. And I had these metal rods that held my leg together and they would pick my leg up. And every time they picked it up, it was like re-breaking my leg because it was just into pieces. 
And um, I would watch the clock and I would, I, I hardly slept and I was watching some infomercial and there was this beautiful girl in a bikini, people chasing her on the beach or family chasing her. And I thought, oh my gosh, what if, I, I probably won't ever wear a bikini again. What if they amputate my legs and what if I can never run? What if my husband doesn't love me? What if I can't chase after my kids? What if I can't work? What if I can't walk? What if I die? Like it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And I was like, stop, I have a choice here. I can keep going down that road of despair or I can be grateful right now. I'm alive. I can breathe. My family loves me. I've got great doctors and nurses. I've got a view from the hospital room. I've got friends that are coming to see me. I still, I kept thinking about all the things I was grateful for. And I noticed right away, it got me focused on what I do have and what I can do. So anytime you start to feel sad or worried or anxious or anything, I, I think it's so powerful if you can switch that to what you're grateful for. And it is immediately you start to feel different. And so I say practice because I, you know, I have a group of girlfriends, we call each other the God squad and we, we text each other. We use an app now because we were texting. Now we use an app. So now all these gratitude, uh, entries for what I'm grateful for are saved, logged, and then we send it to each other. So we get to express it, share it. Then I get to read theirs. And on days where I'm struggling, I look at like, you know, I was, uh, complaining, upset, had a flat tire on the side of the road and grateful to get home, but still kind of in a funk about it. And I looked and uh, on my girlfriend's gratitude list, she was grateful. It was her last dose of chemo. And oh, I thought, gosh, gosh, does that shift your yeah. perspective? You know? Yeah. Um, and so I think that gratitude is something that practicing that every day, I've I've shared that with some people in my community that have complex regional pain syndrome or any kind of pain. And they started doing that and to see the transformation in their joy. And I think that's really important to realize that you can have pain and you can build upon the joy at the same time. Like the pain that I have, my my I, I, we were talking about before we hit record that I'm running out the door right after this interview. So I was like, well, I got to make sure I'm all ready to go. So I'm at right after this, I can just log off and run. And so I've already got my shoe on, which starts to flare me up. So I feel that. But when I focus on, I get to talk to you, I get to be here with you. I can build upon that. We, it's so important what we focus on. And I think that resilient people choose very carefully what they focus on. And it's not like I am some highly motivated, positive person all the time. I have to work at it. Like I wake up and I'm not like, woo, let's start the day. Everything's perfect and amazing. I wake up and as soon as I hit my feet, hit the ground, I have to pray. I have to think about what I'm grateful for because I immediately have pain. And if I let that pain take over, then it would, it could ruin easily ruin my whole day. But instead I have learned through this practice 
um, of, you know, my morning time alone before others wake up, you know, before my daughter wakes up, before my husband wakes up, before I open the phone, I get time for me to think about what my intentions are for the day. I pray, I do a, a, a reading out of one of my favorite books. I do my gratitude list. And then, you know, I drink my gut supplement, my gut health supplement drink, and I go to the gym and I have smart feet, whereas I know that's what I'm going to do. And the reason I do that is because, and some people might go, gosh, that seems like a lot of work. You got to work out, you got to journal, you got to read, you got to reach out to people. But I tried it the other way and it didn't work. And yeah, this seems like a lot of work, but it's a whole of a lot, heck of a lot easier than a life of misery was which that's what I had before. Right. You know, the overarching theme that I just kept seeing appear in your story and even in today's chat and everything is your innate desire to serve others. And even in your hospital bed, like it gets me choked up, gets me emotional because you are, I mean, I remember listening to this and just getting so emotional because you are sitting in a hospital bed broken your body is broken and you cannot move and you cannot coming from the life that you came from. You can't stand on your own. You can't walk yourself out there. You couldn't see your daughter. Like, and she was so little, she was mm -hmm. so little, like that story just ripped my heart out. And even during all of those times, you made a point to serve the nurses and they found a, a place of refuge in your hospital room. They came to you for advice, for help, for, because of who you are. And I look at your story from childhood on and the horrific things that happened to you as a child and then moving on, getting out of that. And then the things that you experienced as an adult and the the things that you have overcome. And there is just no doubt in my mind that you have survived all of this to be in the place that you are, to be a platform, to be on a platform, to help so many people and to give them encouragement and hope. And if you can survive and still be this thriving drop dead, gorgeous specimen mm. of a human being, but your heart shockingly, it's, it's hard to even understand how your heart could be more beautiful than your outside because your outside is so perfect and beautiful, but it's like your heart is even more beautiful than, than your exterior. And I just think that you, you, I am so humbled by the lack of hardship that I've been through compared, everybody's been through hard things, but nothing compared to what you've been through and the life that you live and the service and gratitude that you practice every day. You are honestly, even just a minute ago, you said, I get to be here with you. Like you're, you're always making it about other people and it is compelling. It is inspiring. And it's honestly humbling to see, and you're just an amazing human. 
Oh, thank you. Can I just hang out with you all day? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do. Let's <laughs> just kick seriously, back. Seriously, yeah. <laughs> you are just so kind. You are just so so kind, and your words really touch my heart. Mm-hmm. You got me teary eyed yeah, saying no, that. No, listen, every so bit of it is straight I, from my heart. I, well, you you're so sweet, and I, I will get off you know a call like this, and I'm like, wow gosh, she is the best. And then I go, you know, and I'll see my family. They're like, mom, I need a snack. Um, (laughs) You need to fold the clothes. Um, Hurry and pack. We're moving. They don't care that you wrote a book and (laughs) did a TED talk. They don't care. Yeah. They're like, Like, yeah. Pick up the dog poop. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Family has a way of humbling you, bringing you down to down to earth real quick. So, okay, the last question that I want to ask for you, and I, I saw you talking about this um, in another interview, and you you said, I didn't do anything great until I was like in my late 40s, or, you know, you, you were talking about writing a book and doing a, a TED Talk and all these things, and I think so many people think that they have missed their prime it's too late for me. When can I, I, I think it's too late. I don't know if, if I can do this. And what would you say to people who think that they can't make a difference or that they feel like they've missed their, their time in life to do that? Yeah. Well, you know, I had a completely different career, you know, I was so happy doing what I did. And I thought that that's, that would be, the rest of my life. Cause, uh, my fitness business was, was thriving and, um, and, you know, I used to, and, and I, I did feel a lot of purpose in that because I taught a, a teacher training. It was a certification preparation course for trainers. And so I was able to teach other people and mentor them how to be a fitness instructor. And so it was very rewarding and I loved it. And then I was like, wow, when this happened, I kept trying to get back to that. Mm -hmm. And I realized that resilience isn't about bouncing back. It's about bouncing forward and choosing the courage to, you know, move through life, uh, open with an open mind and open to new possibilities. And, you know, five years ago, I didn't even own a computer. I did everything by hand. So all my clients, all my records, everything, I still have all my books, still have all my clients info. In fact, I will still have some of my clients do a body fat testing, and I haven't tested their body fat, but I have their records from 20 years ago up, you know, and they're like, can, I just did my body fat. Can you tell me what my records were from six years ago or, for, you know, <laughs> and so, um, you're, I just, I didn't own a computer. I had never written a book. I don't have a college education. My whole life was on the dance floor or the gym floor, but I had this, this deep, deep burning passion within me to help others. And I would say for other people, if you're there, if you're sitting there and you're like, well, I don't know exactly what my purpose is. And I, I would say, well, go back to your younger self, whether that's eight, nine years old. And what were the things that you did when you were that age that brought you joy? And for me, I remember very vividly, it was dancing and it was dancing on the tabletops at the Dairy Queen on Friday night and the jukebox playing and seeing the crowd of people 
that seemed like a crowd because I was so little um, that just they would they would light up with joy when they would see me dance. And I thought, I love this. I love seeing that light of, you know, joy come across people. And today I do something very similar. I get to coach women in a mastermind that I do and see that light bulb of transformation when they reach their clarity and then they go and launch their podcast or they go and speak on stage or they go and write their own book. I get to see that. So my joy is now connected to what I do from when I was little. I still have the same type of joy, but it's just a little bit different. So I would encourage people to go back and look at what they did when they were younger that really brought them joy, because that's what I did. I thought, well, what truly brings me joy and what can I do to go and pursue that? Because I think that when you love what you do, you could do it forever. It doesn't feel like work. No. It just energizes you. Yep. And when you don't, it's going to be really hard to pursue it. It's going to be real hard to stick to it. I think that, you know, if somebody like me that, you know, I hand wrote 90% of my book oh my and gosh. then bought a laptop and typed it up, got a publisher, lo and behold, they interviewed me on the Today Show and it became a bestseller. Oh and then I did gosh. my second book and then did a TED talk. And then, you know, I'm speaking on stage with, well, I've already shared the stage with Ed Milet once, but I get to do it again. Um, and John Maxwell and Randy oh, Garn and these other speakers in my next event. And so I get to be on these incredible stages and it's because I held this vision mm. and then every day I worked towards that vision and I made sure I surrounded myself with people who believed in me and my vision. So if you want to do something, you are never too old. You're never too dumb. You're never too late. I mean, I told myself all those things, like I wasn't good enough. And I'm like, but wait, 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 it's not about me. It's about the people I serve. So every, anytime I had self-doubt, I would just think of who it was that I wanted to serve and why I wanted to serve them. And that gave me the courage to keep moving. Yeah. And that lit the fire under me to keep moving forward. And now it continues to spur me along on the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. So I encourage anybody who's listening, just start. You have to decide and then just start. Don't think it has to be perfect. I mean, believe me, when I was recording my Audible book, I was like, holy moly, there are mistakes in this published book. Wow. Like that my eyes missed, the editor editor's eyes missed. There's a mistake. It's not about being perfect. It's about showing up and progress over perfection. Mm, man, I cannot thank you enough for being here today. You just breathed life into my soul per usual. Every time we talk, you do that. Uh, True Grit and Grace by Amberly Lago is a life-altering book. It will change your perspective. It will make you rethink what you're doing how you're doing it, how you're looking at life and just give you some incredible perspective. It's not, it is uplifting. You know what this is? I told my husband, I said, it's like I am listening to a fiction book. You do such a phenomenal job of writing it so vividly that you feel like you are in the story and then you flash back to your childhood back in Texas and you talk about growing up there and your grandmother and all the things you talk about. And it literally felt like I was watching a show on Netflix or listening to a book, but it's real. It's so unbelievable. It's hard to believe that it's real, but it is 
captivating. One of the most entertaining, captivating, and life-changing books I've ever read, all wrapped up into a bow. So I'm not surprised that it's a bestseller and that you were on the Today Show and all and a TED Talk, all the things, because that's how good this book is. How can everybody find you and be a part of what, what you are doing? Oh, thank you. Yeah, reach out to me. Um, AmberlyLago.com is where you can find my book, my podcast, True Grit and Grace. Um, you can find my mastermind there, or you can look up unstoppablelifemastermind.com. And I hang out on Instagram at Amberly Lago Motivation, where you can see some of the behind the scenes shenanigans, especially with my daughter and my little two pound dog. And um, yes, or you know what? You can text me the word grit, just the word grit, G-R-I-T to 818-214-7378. And I would love to give your audience, I'll set that up right now. I'll give your audience a free downloadable playbook, Mm. which will allow them to go through my five part process of strengthening your resilience and allow them to tap into their own superpower resilience. And so, yeah, just text me and that's me texting back. So after you text grit, just say hello. And, and, um, I'm happy to connect. That's my favorite part of this whole journey is connecting with others. So yeah. Yeah. And I just want to thank you for having me on and let me share with your amazing audience. It's an honor to get to see your gorgeous face. I've loved, um, getting to know you more and just thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you so much, Amberly. And I can attest to her texting you back and being a real person. We actually like struck up a friendship because she is so real. She's a big deal. She doesn't have to do this. Like nobody would think twice about it. They would say, oh, she's busy. She's busy. She is so real. She actually takes the time to have conversations with people and get to know them. And it is really special. So Amberly, thank you so much. And I will, mm. we're in the same area. So I hope to see you very soon. I know me too. <laughs> All right, go run out the door and go to your thing. Okay. We'll talk soon. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye. If this episode resonated with you today, please share it with at least two people you think would love it too. Keep up with the show at The Rachel Roth Show on Instagram and TikTok and keep up with me at Rachel underscore R underscore Roth on Instagram and TikTok. Don't forget to rate and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I know it sounds silly, but it really does make a huge difference and it allows this content to get in front of more people. I can't wait to see you again.